This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochrane, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Tuesday, October 17th. On the pod today, international condemnation and reaction after an airstrike on a hospital in Gaza leaves hundreds of people dead. We'll hear from the head of Doctors Without Borders Canada, whose colleague was in that hospital when the attack happened. And an expert weighs in on what this means for the escalating Israel-Hamas war. Plus, the story of a woman who survived the attack on October 7th and armed her kids as Hamas closed in. We begin with disturbing news out of Gaza. Officials there say an airstrike has hit a hospital killing hundreds of Palestinians. We have video from the ground and a warning. They contain some graphic images. Palestinian officials say at least 500 people are dead following an attack on a Gaza City hospital. Hamas says it was an Israeli airstrike, but Israel denies responsibility and says its intelligence points to a Palestinian jihadist group. Journalist Iris Mackler joins us from Jerusalem. So, Iris, this is a a fast-moving and fluid situation. What do we know at this point about this hospital strike? Here's what we know uh, happened this evening. There was an explosion at a hospital known as the Baptist Hospital in in Gaza City. And what happened then is that there are some number of hundreds of people. We haven't determined that. The chaos is extreme there. Uh, I originally heard from a doctor before this story hit the wires. He's a doctor at a nearby hospital, not at the Baptist Hospital. And he said to me, 200 people are dead. Since then, that number has gone up. Uh, and according to sources on the ground, there are some number of hundreds who are dead, wounded and trapped beneath the rubble. Uh, And the question now, of course, is who was to blame for this? Is it an airstrike or how did that explosion happen? Right. And we have sort of a fog of war situation, right, with uh, with with, uh, Gaza officials saying it was an Israeli airstrike and Israel saying it was an Islamic jihad missile that that fell short and and struck the hospital. Whatever the truth of that, we have a mass casualty event at a hospital on the eve of the arrival of U.S. President Joe Biden, who's going to be in Israel tomorrow. What will President Biden try to accomplish and how does this event affect his trip? I think this event will affect his trip. It will dominate his trip. It it must, because it's a mass casualty event, because it's a hospital. Uh, And I think... um the Hamas saying Israel deliberately targeted the hospital and the Israeli response to that is, well, first of all, we don't uh, target hospitals, says Israel. Second of all, why would we do it on the eve of the US president's arrival? It makes no sense. So then it could only be an accident. Uh, and they say, no, when we've looked at what was happening that night, uh, these hours previously in the Gaza Strip, there was a barrage of uh, Islamic Jihad rockets and they came across and one of them fell into the hospital. I think the, this battle of narratives now will actually determine part of the success of the US president's mission. He came to display, to, to stand with Israel to send a signal to Israel, to send a signal to Israel's enemies, principally Iran, not to broaden this into a wider conflict, into a regional conflict, uh, because the US has Israel's back. He was going to meet in Amman with moderate Sunni allies of the US, and that would include uh, the King of Jordan, 
the Jordanian king there, the Egyptian president and the Palestinian president was going to come too. However, he's now left Amman and has headed back because of the groundswell of anger against uh, it, following this mass casualty event at the hospital in Gaza, uh, which has turned against him too. He's a highly unpopular president, very long-serving, very unpopular, and some of the chanting in Ramallah tonight was, you know, we have to, we want to bring down our president. So lots of repercussions politically for this, and I guess it's how Israel and how Joe Biden, how convincing Israel's evidence will be, and how Joe, and how Joe Biden will succeed in playing that. But there's no doubt it will, it will dominate his short visit here and his visit in Amman. Okay, Iris, thank you so much. That's journalist Iris Mackler in Jerusalem. Israel is denying responsibility for that attack on the Gaza City Hospital. A spokesperson for its military, Jonathan Conricus, spoke just last hour to CNN. Here's part of what he had to say. We're in the progress of uh, declassifying. I cannot promise yet that we will, but maybe because of the importance and because of what is at stake here, uh, that may happen. But the important fact that I can say now for the first time on CNN is that we did not strike that and that the intelligence that we have suggests that it was a failed rocket launch by the Islamic Jihad. And I want to add categorically that we do not intentionally strike any sensitive facilities, any sensitive facilities and definitely not hospitals. We are very much aware of the presence of civilians, and we are all too aware of the cynical manipulation that Hamas seeks to do by using civilians exactly for these purposes. And we've seen that all over the many years of conflict we've had with Hamas, and more so during this war. They have no boundaries. They bombed their own civilians. They, uh, they attacked them. They use violence. And in this case, what happened is that they are trying to leverage this sad incident of a misfire of an Islamic Jihad rocket in order to leverage pressure on Israel. Okay, we want to take a look at the potential fallout of this hospital attack in the broader region and this broader conflict. Randa Sleem is a senior fellow and director of the Conflict Resolution and Track 2 Dialogues program at the Middle East Institute. Randa Sleem, thanks so much for joining us today. Good to be with you. Thank you. Uh, this, this is very much a fog of war moment. Uh, Israel saying it has intelligence, saying it was not their missile. It was, in fact, Islamic Jihad firing a missile that fell short. Uh, but this is a, a propaganda opportunity for Israel's opponents based on how it was initially reported to the world. What, what are your thoughts on how this moment uh, may play out? Look, I mean, I'm talking about the region, especially in the Arab region. Uh, uh, Israel has had already track, long track record of especially in accidents like these and in attacks like these, uh, to deny, you know, culpability. And then later on, when expressed by the international community, especially by the United States, to really conduct, you know, to, to come forward with, with what happened, they will backtrack. I think the only way that Israel can win this narrative or can, you know, get any kind of backing for its narrative is by by allowing an impartial investigation by a third party to look at the evidence and say, yes, this was an Israeli missile or no, it was not an Israeli mm. missile. So otherwise, people, especially in the region, are not going to believe what Israel tells them.
it is the case. Right. There, there would be a challenge, obviously, to do an independent investigation in the moment we're in, right? G- given the military operations that are happening, they have released video, including video from Al Jazeera, which Israel says shows that this was uh, a missile that was fired from inside Gaza by a group. Uh, so even if there is a evidence and clear transparency from Israel, what challenges do they have convincing their enemies that it was, in fact, not them? It was someone else. You know, look, in the first, in the first denial, they, in the first tweet that the IDF put out, they put a video. And when you look at the, you know, at the timestamp on the video, it does not correspond with the time that the missile supposedly hit the, 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 the hospital. So, and then eventually the IDF deleted that video. And so the question now is why did they delete that timestamp stamped video? Why don't they, you know, mm. suppose they are, they are, they are using it as part of their evidence. Again, these are, I mean, these records could be looked at by an impartial third party. There are, there are clear videos by different sources. It can be looked at by an impartial third party and determine whether the Israeli narrative is a correct one or whether the other narrative is a correct one. So while uh, we look for answers on this, uh, a lot of people are looking at Israel's northern border with Lebanon and wondering in particular how Hezbollah uh, may respond to this. I, I read your excellent piece about Hezbollah's calculations on opening a second front against Israel. And one of the things you point to is how bloody the Gaza operation might be. How does an event like today factor into Hezbollah's calculations right now? Oh, I mean, the event, I mean, another factor in the piece that I refer to is what, what will be the Arab public opinion, how it's going to be, you know, in terms of the offensive. I think what, what we have today is an, infla- an inflamed uh, public opinion in the Arab region, uh, across the Arab countries, and, and also in Turkey, for example. And so I think that will be a factor that will, in fact, facilitate a decision by Hezbollah to launch a second front. But it's one of many factors. I don't think Hezbollah will right away respond, but Hezbollah will definitely have to respond to what happened, you know, uh, with this recent attack on the hospital. In the wake of this attack, uh, Hezbollah announced uh, that Wednesday would be what they're calling a day of unprecedented anger against Israel. And this is as U.S. President Joe Biden is on his way to Israel to meet with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, what's your reaction to, to this move by Hezbollah and how do you think it might play? I mean, already you have, uh, 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 whether they mean by that, you know, wide demonstrations going on in Lebanon, in Syria, in Egypt, in Jordan, or what that means also in addition to this demonstration, an increase in the tempo of the military escalation between them on the, on the Israel-Lebanon border. It could mean both. It could, be, it could mean one. But definitely the, the repercussion of this attack on the hospital is going to create a how to say, a a milieu in the Arab region that is very much accepting of an expansion of the war beyond Gaza and Israel. We've seen skirmishes at Israel's northern border, uh, some exchanges of fire and small-scale incursions, uh, but not anything that amounts to the full-scale sort of conflict that people are kind of dreading may break out in the region, the sort of the language of that conflict as it has played out over the years. Um, 
we don't know when the ground invasion of Gaza will begin. I, I suspect uh, that it may not be until President Biden leaves the region. Um, what is your sense of that? And what do you think Hezbollah will do once those operations start? I, I, I agree with you that I don't think this uh, this incursion or this invasion is going to start while uh, President Biden is in the region, but he's going to be there for a day and then he's leaving. And then we have already been hearing from IDF spokesperson that it might not be a ground invasion. It might be something else. We don't know what is being prepared by the Israeli side, but it's definitely clear that the political climate inside Israel forces, I mean, make it extremely difficult for the Israeli uh, side not to do something, uh, not to do a major operation against Hamas. The problem with, the, with, with going forward is that their goal now is the evisceration of Hamas, is the total destruction of Hamas. And that's something that is perceived to be a red line by Hezbollah. In the past, there have been many Hamas-Israel uh, uh, military uh, confrontation in the past, like up to five of them. And all the time, uh, the goal for Israel has been to deter and punish Hamas. Hamas has been a useful tool for Israeli governments, particularly for Mr. Netanyahu himself, to basically make the claim that there is no uh, credible Palestinian negotiating partner to engage with in serious negotiation about a peace process. And so now Hamas can no longer be this useful tool. Mm. So this, this objective of destroying Hamas, eviscerating Hamas, as has been stated numerous times by the Israeli military officials, is, is, is a red line for Hezbollah. And that's why I think this time, unlike previous times when there was fighting between Hamas and, 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 and Israel, and Hezbollah did not intervene. I think this time, because it is crossing is Hezbollah's red line, because of the Israeli objective of the operation, I think the likelihood of Hezbollah opening another front in this war is higher than previously. This is the thing that everybody we speak to about this is worried about. And, um, because Hezbollah is arguably, if not categorically, the most powerful non-state military force on Earth and has a precision rockets that can hit any target it wants uh, inside Israel, especially if they are fighting a, a two-front battle as it would be. Um, how worried really should we be? I mean, how like it's higher, but do you think it's, it's likely at this point that should they go into Gaza, it could provoke Hezbollah to go into Israel? I, it's very hard to yeah. tell. All I can say, it's more likely than before. Hezbollah's war room is very small in terms of membership. It's a very opaque organization. Mm. It's very hard, but the extreme small circle of decision makers of Hezbollah to know their thinking. I mean, we can, based on their previous speeches, on their statements, you know, speculate about what are the factors that might influence their decision making? But what is going to be the trigger, you know, to make them shift away from what has been in place between them and Israel since 2006 on the southern, uh, you know, border of Lebanon, which is basically accepted rules of the game between them after the war of 2006, that, you know, there is a mutual regime of deterrence and we'll both live by it. Somebody violates it, then there is a tit-for-tat, limited escalation, right. and it gets restored via indirect negotiations thanks to the UN, pres uh, UN force in the South. Today, we are, in, we are in, in uncharted territory. As I said, until now, 
Israel's objective in Gaza has never been to eviscerate, eradicate, deny Hamas political existence or existence as a political authority. This is an important factor for Hezbollah. Once this is not, once this has become the objective of the Israeli government, then it is as a, it is a red line for Hezbollah. And then that's why this is going to be a major factor in intervening. Look at what they have done in helping rescue the Assad regime in Syria. You know, I don't think they are going to do, I mean, it's a different thing. They are not here fighting militias like they've done in Syria. They are fighting the mighty Israeli military machine. But still, the red line is a red line for them and for Iran. And I think they are going to act accordingly. So the likelihood is higher. Will they do it? Will they act on it? There are a number of factors which is going to enter in affecting their decision-making calculus. Right. So we have two red lines, right? Hezbollah's red line to see Hamas preserved and Israel's red line to see them destroyed. And as you said, uncharted territory. So just as as a final point, what are you watching for next? I I, I know we have no idea where this is going, but what what is the sort of thing you're you're watching for that could give us a a signal of, of where this might lead? I mean, I would watch on the Golan Heights. If there is an escalation next, it might be on the Syrian front mm. uh, as, as an intermediate step. So I would watch the Golan Heights. I think this is a, a place where, where I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly watching very closely right now. And so uh, before a, a, a full-blown escalation between Hezbollah and Israel, I would see some interim escalation happening on the Golan Heights. In the, on the border between Syria and, and Israel. Okay. Uh, Randa Sleem, uh, thank you so much. We appreciate your insight and your time. It's Randa Sleem. She's a senior fellow and director of the Conflict Resolution and Track 2 Dialogues program at the Middle East Institute. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Bye. Okay, this is a live shot of Air Force One as U.S. President Joe Biden is preparing to go to the Middle East, going to Israel, but just moving on the wires. Some breaking news that Jordan has canceled the summit planned with U.S. President Joe Biden and Egyptian and Palestinian leaders in Amman on Wednesday. That coming from the Jordanian foreign minister. So this speaks to how fast moving this is, uh, that Biden's plans are changing after a hospital in Gaza was hit by an airstrike. Palestinian officials, of course, say the hospital in Gaza City was hit by an Israeli airstrike. Israel is denying responsibility, saying it was the Islamic Jihad terrorist organization that was, in fact, behind this tragedy. So this is video obtained by Reuters, and it shows the Gaza hospital engulfed in flames moments after this missile strike. Palestinian officials say at least 500 people have been killed. Now, Doctors Without Borders has more than 300 staff working in Gaza, some of whom have remained in northern Gaza to tend to the sick and wounded. For more on the situation in Gaza, I'm joined by the executive director for Doctors Without Borders Canada, Joseph Beliveau. Joseph, it's good to speak with you again. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. So the, obviously the most urgent development in Gaza today is this missile strike that hit the hospital. Uh, we have a fog of war situation with uh, Pal- uh, Hamas and, and Gaza Health Ministry blaming an Israeli airstrike. The Israel Defense Forces say they have intelligence saying it was an Islamic Jihad rocket attack that fell short of reaching Israel and hit the hospital. Whatever the truth of that, we have a hospital being struck in the middle of this and more than 500 people presumed dead. What's your reaction to what's happened there? Well, of course, we can't speak to the, to the source of the missile strike, but my, my colleague, one of my colleagues, a, a surgeon, doctor, was in that hospital when the, when the airstrike uh, hit. 
uh, and, and he had this to say, we were operating in the hospital, there was a strong explosion, and the ceiling fell on the operating room. This is a massacre. So we, we, we can't confirm the numbers of casualties. Uh, it's it, it, intensely chaotic there now. Um, this, um, th- th- this pattern, unfortunately, is not unusual from, from what we've experienced, from what my colleagues have been sharing with me over the last days. Um, two of the three hospitals uh, previous to this event that MSF or Doctors Without Borders has been supporting in uh, northern Gaza have been hit by airstrikes as well. And we know of several other uh, hospitals and me- medical facilities, as well as ambulances uh, that have been hit in, uh, in this indiscriminate uh, uh, airstrike uh, campaign. I have to ask about your colleague. I mean, obviously, uh, able to send a message and, and tell you what happened. Uh, how is he? Has he gotten to safety? What's his uh, condition right now? I, I know that he's, 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 he's still with us. <laughs> That's what I can say. I don't know where he is at the moment. That's another feature of, uh, especially over the last several days, it's become uh, increasingly difficult to have contact and to verify the safety and the whereabouts of many uh, of my colleagues. We have over 300 uh, MSF employees are, are in Gaza. Uh, many of them have had to evacuate from hospitals, have uh, sought to be with their families, have tried to uh, heed the, uh, the evacuation orders and move to relatively safer territory down in the south. Uh, but it's absolutely uh, chaotic. And uh, within all of this, it's been increasingly difficult, almost to the point where it's it's impossible uh, to deliver meaningful humanitarian assistance under these conditions. And by these conditions, I mean conditions of ongoing indiscriminate uh, bombing, uh, siege warfare, in which this total blockade is making it uh, impossible for us to have the most basic uh, medical supplies, uh, painkillers, anesthetics. We're doing surgeries without anesthetics uh, right now. Uh, the water situation, as everybody knows, we don't have water in these uh, hospitals anymore. Um, and then on top of that, uh, forced uh, evacuations. Uh, in, in one case, uh, a hospital was was told, a hospital that MSF supports, was told to evacuate within, within two hours. These are just impossible uh, circumstances to deliver meaningful humanitarian assistance. Many of these hospitals, uh, the the one that was hit today, uh, Al-Shifa Hospital, which is operating without anesthetic, it is the largest hospital in Gaza. They're in that northern part of the area that the IDF has has told to evacuate. Uh, I spoke with a doctor there last week and said they're not going to leave. They can't leave. They have patients who can't move. What happens to the doctors, the nurses, the other health professionals and the patients in these hospitals north of the evacuation line. This is another aspect of, 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 I can confirm from my colleagues, my medical colleagues in in particular, this intense personal dilemma where you have this choice between, should I go to be with my family to find us a relatively safer place within Gaza, or should I stay? Because I know that there are injured people who cannot move. They simply cannot uh, adhere to that order. So they're going to stay here in this hospital. There are uh, uh, sick people, people who are too ill to move, uh, elderly people, children without parents. Um, there are just so many uh, people who can't move. And so you, you're faced as a, as a medical uh, 
uh, professional, you're faced with that intense dilemma. Do I go? And men, many have chosen. They've chosen, uh, no, I need to be here. I need to be in solidarity. I need to provide the medical care that I can. But they risk. They have been risking their lives in doing so. One of the challenges um, in operating in Gaza is the control that Hamas has over so much of the civilian infrastructure. And, and the conversations with the Israeli military that we've had, they point to the fact that they use civilian buildings like hospitals. Al-Shifa Hospital, the largest hospital in Gaza, has been used as an operation hub for Hamas in the past. What kind of a challenge does that create for medical professionals trying to do the work they've signed up to do, knowing that the potential presence of Hamas makes them a target? The first thing to say about that is that uh, the Geneva Convention's international humanitarian law are, are crystal clear on this point, that hospitals, medical facilities, ambulances are protected spaces in war. And there's an obligation by all parties to war to uh, respect the distinction between combatants and non-combatants with specific uh, and explicit reference to uh, medical facilities. And so um, the fact that this has been repeatedly uh, uh, flouted, this this rule of law, is, 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 is creating uh, an Un, an untenable uh, situation. And it's not only the medical practitioners. You know, I just mentioned that uh, many of, of my colleagues have been making the choice and other health professionals too, and, and not only health workers, but make, making the choice to be there and to do what they can for the for the people who need their, their care. It's not only the medical practitioners, as in the case of the bombing that has, has just occurred, many hundreds and hundreds of people have been going to hospitals because they have believed that they are relatively safer places to be. So uh, my colleague has, has, you know, describing mattresses and uh, put in between the hospital beds and people sleeping in corridors and all over the place simply because they they have felt so vulnerable just being out in the streets or in their neighborhoods that they've thought that hospitals uh, would be relatively safer places. And, and they should be. So what is happening is really, it's unconscionable. U.S. President Joe Biden is uh, on his way to Israel. He's going to be there tomorrow. One of the conditions for his trip uh, was that Israel and the U.S. work together to develop some sort of humanitarian access into Gaza and safe zones in, inside um, the, the Gaza Strip. How, uh, how, how much hope do you put in that process, given what we're seeing play out in the region? At this point, it, we're going to continue to call for what is necessary. I, I consistently hear my colleagues sharing worse and worse news every day. Um, my, my, my hope is not high right now, but we know what we have to call for. And what we have to call for is the first, first and foremost, basic respect for non-combatant and the, the end to the indiscriminate uh, killings and bombings, first and foremost. And then after that, and, and I really hope that, uh, that, uh, political powers who, who have influence will really start to exert that influence and demand that that indiscriminate bombing stop and that there be a flow of humanitarian aid in, uh, uh, and, and I'm talking about really the most basics. We're talking about food. We're talking about water, uh, fuel, those hospitals that I was referring to, the, the, the electricity has been cut and the fuel is, is either run out, uh, or is almost running out. Uh, water, uh, uh, painkillers, uh, you know, the, the most basic kind of medical supplies for treating wounds. We have to get a flow 
of those basic materials in, into Gaza uh, for the immediate treatment of, uh, of injured people, but also uh, the water situation. Um, uh, one colleague of mine was, was describing a, a medic who was also saying that um, he was torn at a certain moment between continuing to provide medical care and actually needing to go and find drinkable water for his children who were becoming uh, dehydrated and, and he had to make the latter choice. Uh, we're, we're talking about a situation where there just isn't drinking water and people can't survive and you can't run hospitals and the, the hygiene situation in the hospitals is getting uh, atrocious uh, because of this. So I really hope that the, the political pressures to, to bear will call for that, an end to the indiscriminate bombing and an immediate uh, flow of humanitarian assistance. Joseph Beliveau, Executive Director for Doctors Without Borders Canada. Uh, th- we always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, David. Global Affairs Canada has confirmed a sixth victim of the Hamas attack on Israel who was Canadian or had strong family ties to Canada. I met with her father in Tel Aviv and with her uncle. They told me how much she was a brilliant, beautiful young woman. And my heart and my thoughts are with her loved ones. Tiferet Lapido was a 23-year-old Israeli woman with Canadian parents. She was at the music festival near the Gaza border when Hamas attacked. A family member told CBC News she called her mom while the siege was underway. She whispered she was hiding in a bush, and then her phone was disconnected. This all started 10 days ago when Hamas gunmen raided Israeli communities, killing more than 1,400 people. Mikhail Rahoff and her family were some of the people that survived the attack that day in Nureem, and she joins me now to tell her story. Mikhail, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Where were you when the attack started? How did the attack begin? Um, It was Saturday morning, holiday uh, in Israel, 6.32. Alarms started going off also on the applications on our phone. My house is located in the um, last line of the kibbutz. Just after my house is the kibbutz's fence. Um, some fields that we have of cotton and uh, banana plantations. And then it's the obstacle and the Gaza Strip. So it's just under two kilometers. And we're hearing um, a lot of alarms as well as the rockets being fired uh, towards the middle part of Israel um, and also uh, Be'er Sheva because we're so close to the Gaza Strip. So immediately we understand that something is very, very bad going on um, compared to other escalations that we had, unfortunately. Um, This time the intensity of the alarms was overwhelming. So, so beyond the alarms, when did you realize that something truly awful was happening? Um, well, not right away. Uh, we just know we just understood that it's very intense, and we have to get out of there as fast as we can. Um, we were sitting in the safe room, and usually we have uh, like this family protocol for evacuation that we built for ourselves. And this time we said, okay, we don't have time for this. Just get dressed, put on shoes. The minute we get a chance, uh, the, the alarms will settle down a bit. We're getting out of here and we'll figure out the rest as we go. No bags, no nothing. 
Um, can, can I interrupt you for just one that. second, Mikael? Because I, I just sure. want to set the scene. It's not you and your husband. It, you have three children, right? You, you, it's you, you, correct. Yeah. Like, so you have like uh, 15, 13, and, and 10-year-old children with you when this is happening? Yes, correct. And two dogs as well. My husband also is a police officer in a reserve in uh, the Gaza Division unit. So um, he already got dressed and um, he was prepared to, he was waiting for the call to be called to the division and he was prepared with his weapons and everything. And we were sitting in the safe room, my children, myself, my dogs, my husband, and uh, waiting for some kind of uh, uh, short uh, break between the alarms so we can evacuate. But it didn't stop. Mm. And um, we were leaving just for several minutes, just going in and out of the safe room to get some stuff to pack. Uh, And at one point, I was standing in front of um, our closet in our bedroom. And uh, my husband was next to me. And then we hear gun blasts really, really close to us. And we were looking at each other and this is new. This never happened before. And what is this? So maybe it's IDF, but why would IDF be shooting like this so close to our house? And then um, we heard the shouting in Arabic and we realized we have terrorists in the kibbutz. They penetrated the kibbutz. I ran immediately back to the safe room to my children and I closed the door and I told them, I gave my oldest daughter a uh, pepper spray. I gave my second daughter a club and my son, I gave him a helmet uh, to put in front of his body. And I told all of them, whatever comes through that door, we fight. We don't give up. We have to fight. And we hear the gun blast coming really, really closer now, just, just beyond the safe room's door. We hear my husband shooting. And he comes into the safe room and closes the door. And he said, I just killed a terrorist. He tried to get into the house. And as he was finishing the sentence, there were again gun blasts. There were shooting at the safe room door. And then there were this enormous explosion on the safe room's door. The whole room was filled with um, uh, smoke and gunpowder smelled and our ears were ringing it was it was awful um we 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 had to recuperate really fast because we understood that <laughs> our lives are at stake and um he gave me a gun my husband and we were st- standing there with our weapons pointed at the door and we said we're fighting to the last bullet we have we're not giving up and um they were also shooting at the iron window just behind us because the safe room ha- has also a window with a iron uh, a part that you pull to close shut. Right. And they were shooting at us because uh, afterwards we understood that they were shooting RPGs at our house. And uh, they thought that maybe they would get us to escape through the window. Um, so, so w- But we stayed put. You you stay and put. Then, uh, so, sorry, you you and your husband have guns. Your your children have a club and pepper spray, and Hamas is is firing rockets at, at your house. But so you you stayed put in the safe room. How 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 were you able to get through this? At that moment, 
Every second that they didn't open the door and try to uh, go for the handle was a miracle for us. Um, they just moved on. Why? I don't know. But they just did. And immediately I opened uh, my phone and tried to call for help for whoever I know. Um, I opened up the group um, text that we have in the kibbutz with neighbors and friends. And I told them we have terrorists in our house or shooting at our door call for help do something and a few minutes go by and then we start getting a lot of messages that people are saying that they're in their house and they're putting their houses on fire and that they uh they're trying to pull open the door and everybody was just encouraging each other don't give up fight don't give up do whatever you can don't let them in And this was going on for about six hours, five hours. They were coming back and forth. We could hear them uh, until the IDF, IDF came and uh, finally uh, got control of the situation. And we could leave. Then they rescued us from the room. And then we, we, we exited the room and we saw the devastation of the house. It was completely destroyed. Um. So we just took what we could. I just picked some stuff off the floor. We took everybody, kids and our dogs, and we left. What, what, you and, and your family are okay? Um, you survived? What happened to your neighbors? Um, Je the neighbor just in front of me, um, he has three small children. He's divorced. He was with them at the time. He also, uh, killed a terrorist that came into his house, a few houses uh, next to us. Um, there was a couple that has been abducted, um, a few houses after that. Uh, there was, uh, um, someone that was murdered. Um, also just a few uh, houses on the other side left as well. Other uh, one was murdered and also abducted. The stories are familiar, unfortunately. It's the same for all the kibbutzes. Whatever they could, they murdered and abducted. Um, Mikhail, how are your, your children doing? Um, I, I can't imagine this was an easy, this is not an easy thing for anyone to go through, um, but especially for kids. How have they been in, in the days since this attack? Um, well, we've been getting uh, professional help. Uh, it's very much needed. Um, we had some difficult nights and uh, ups and downs during the day. Um, it's not just this experience that they went through, it's also their friends and They lost some friends, and they have friends that are considered missing. So they're either casualties or abducted, and we don't know yet for sure what is what. So we are still expecting to receive bad news, and we're trying to support them as much as we can. Um, but it's difficult. It's hard. Everybody, I, all of us, we keep on having flashbacks, especially from the moment that we understand that they're in the kibbutz. Where are you now, Mikhail? You've, you've, you've relocated. Is your family still together? You mentioned your husband is a police officer. Has he gone back to active duty? Uh, what's the status? Yeah. 
Well, we are in Elat with all of our kibbutz uh, located in a hotel here, as well as most of the uh, settlements, kibbutzes as well in my council, my regional council. Um, Two days after we came here, um, yes, my husband went back, uh, not to the police force, but to his uh, reserve division in the army in the Gaza division. So, So you fought as a family? the day it happened, and now he's signed up to fight with the IDF in what's ahead. Yeah, he's fighting for his home. Uh, Mikhail, I, I am so sorry this happened to you, uh, but thank you uh, so much uh, for taking the time to speak with us, and, and I hope you and your husband and your kids are all going to be okay uh, in the days ahead. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for hearing me. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.